the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thursday, March 25th, 2021. Okay. I watched the press conference with President Biden, and it reminded me of a few things I've said in the past. We just go along with what we call or may call fictions. They may have, indeed most do have, important implications and prescriptions, but we just go along with them, don't we? The idea that a president uses a briefing book in his first press conference after over two months and it's normal or okay is one fiction. The idea we have an in-command commander-in-chief, a president in command of his faculties, that's another fiction. The most important cultural issue, or second most, depending in this country right now and since last year, has been the issue of race, and primarily America as a fundamentally or institutionally racist society. People weren't paying too much attention in 2016 when Hillary Clinton said we all suffered from implicit bias, but that was a real dog whistle. We were told Donald Trump spoke in dog whistles, saying things in code, or receive a wink, and a nod from race haters. And we go along with that charge, too, even as we're told Donald Trump is too explicit and brutish in his language. So we just go along with two contradictions, because if one won't work as a condemnation, the other just may. But what Hillary said about implicit bias was the true dog whistle to an academic and intellectual elite that believes America is systemically racist. And that's the odd thing about implicit bias, whether we're told we suffer from it, all of us, from an older white lady, or whether we're told we suffer from it from a younger white lady, like Robin DeAngelo, the best-selling author of the book White Fragility. That's the funny thing about this whole thing. We just all kind of go along with this. We're told we all suffer from it, mostly by white people, and yet invest hopes and dreams, as in Clinton, or money and intellectual time, as in D'Angelo and her organizations, listening to them and taking them seriously, as if they have been able to supersede and overcome their implicit biases to lecture us in order to lecture us on ours. In case it was unclear, Robin D'Angelo is white. We get to do this, watch white people say every other white person is racist, as if the first person to say it back to an 11-year-old child's game, I guess, is immune from it. Kind of like calling shotgun in a car ride or jinx in a childish contest of words. To put it clearly, I, white person, should be listened to as I am recognizing all white people are racist. Whether they know it or not, admit it or not, And I should be listened to about this to help you understand how you are racist, too, whether you know it or not. Funny thing about that. Most racists don't try to expose and prove the odiousness of their racial or racist beliefs. They usually try to defend them. But when we are all racist by dint of our color as white, somehow 
We all just go along and take seriously the white people who say this, especially white women, telling us we are all racists and need to deal with it, apologize for it, compensate for it. The other funny thing about it, if you admit your own guilt, what do you have to teach me or instruct me on other than your own story? You have no credibility to lecture or instruct me on mine, right? The idea of indicting someone for your own guilt or errancy is just another funny thing about modern society. We all just kind of go along with. It's another myth. You admitting you're racist makes me want to listen to you about racism? Used to be called disqualification. I mean, how many criminal convicts are allowed to be prosecutors, much less even become members of the legal bar? Do arsonists get to join fire departments? Do traitors get to become members of our military? Do drunk drivers get to be truckers or chauffeurs or even keep their licenses to drive? I'm reminded of the Ralph Waldo Emerson line, the louder he spoke of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. It all reminds me of the pseudo-sophisticated intellectual in- infancy or conceit from the academy in the 18, excuse me, in the 1980s and 1990s. Alan Bloom got to it well in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, where he wrote this, quote, There was one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them as though they were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you don't think about. The students' backgrounds are as various as America can provide. Some are religious, some atheists, some are to the left, some to the right. Some intend to be scientists, some humanists or professionals or businessmen. Some are poor, some are rich. They are unified only in their relativism and in their allegiance to equality. And the two are related in moral intention. The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight, but a moral postulate, the condition of a free society, or so they see it. They have all been equipped with this framework early on, and it is the modern replacement for the inalienable natural rights that used to be the traditional American grounds for a free society. Close quote. And of course, the funny thing we all just went along with was when someone could say there was no such thing as absolute truth, if you questioned them on this, they did not understand they themselves were admitting they themselves were postulating an absolute truth. Judgment. Saul gave birth to another piece of nonsense we all just kind of went along with. That one should not be judgmental, not about lifestyle choices, not about other cultures, not about other countries, not about other people. And yet we knew deep down that this too was a myth or a conceit. For people made rational judgments every single day, informing contracts and deciding on partnerships, legal or familial, and deciding court cases, criminal or civil. So deep down was it a ruse that today there are no more judgmental people than those who used to cast the pitch to us not to be judgmental. The liberals and the left, they judge us all the time about whether we are racist, about what we think, about what motivates our thinking, about our intelligence levels. They judge us all the time. Which brings us to one other noun that has lost its favor, if not currency, and that's hypocrisy. 
used to be a hell of a negative indictment of someone or something. It had nearly the same potency, nearly, as calling someone a bigot. One thinks about its potency in the 1980s, for example, where some preachers of moralism in the name of God were found to have been engaged in something awfully close to prostitution, but certainly the violation of the commandment against adultery. And I'm thinking of your Jimmy Bakers and your Jimmy Swaggerts. The hypocrisy we took so seriously that we even indiscriminately denounced and distrusted the real things, those in their business who never went down those roads. Hypocrisy was such a potent charge once we used to think of it as the respect or homage vice paid to virtue and that it hurt everybody. Today, when we call a political leader, say Barack Obama, for con- out when we call him out for condemning racism while trafficking with Louis Farrakhan or condemning the filibuster in racial terms, though he supported it when it was suitable to him, when we call a leader like that a hypocrite, it means nearly nothing. Not anymore. It's just almost as if we wished there were a better word now. But this is all what happens when you defy common sense, go along with things you know are simply not true, live in myths because of the conceit of the pseudo intellectual age where you either have forgotten the natural right arguments or you want to be considered part of the in or cool crowd. This is why it was so meaningful to so many when Donald Trump said political correctness was the biggest problem this country had. Remember when he said that? 2015, the first, the very first Republican debate. For he shouted resonantly enough for those who labored and lived under these societal fictions and jokes that the emperor had no clothes. That's what he was saying. The first political candidate on a major stage to do so. But in all our nodding at all this, if you agree with my analysis above, let's never forget something about that famous story. Really two things. When Hans Christian Andersen wrote it, recall how it came about for the emperor. He was suckered by two swindlers. And so were the people in the street who thought they had to just go along with the bad joke these swindlers perpetrated on a gullible leader, saying and shouting as they did how magnificent these new clothes were. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection and see his long train? Nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything, for that would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. But he hasn't got anything on, said a little child. Did you ever hear such innocent prattle, said his father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on. But he hasn't got anything on, the whole town started to cry out at last. The emperor shivered for he suspected they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever, as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. Nobody would confess the truth, for they didn't want to be seen as a fool. Today one might say racist or idiot, or as the Democrats try to foist on us as a pejorative term, conservative. But finally, a truth-teller appeared, a child, because children know when they are being swindled in a way we sophisticated adults convince ourselves against, especially if someone with a Ph.D. or in high political office says something. And so I fear where we are today. Too many holding high a train they truly know 
isn't there at all in our culture and our politics. Going through exquisite practices and policies of meaningless exactitude. I plead, don't fall for it. Don't give in to it. We don't all have to just kind of go along with it. We really don't. Living in and with myths is no different from living in a, or with a lie. The only thing odd right now to me is so many go along with such big lies. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602508-0960. A lot to do today, and uh, we'll do it uh, presently. June 29th, mark your calendars. Um, mark your calendars for June 29th. That is when a brand new children's book will be published. Children's book. You want to know what it's called? Dr. Fauci. How a Boy from Brooklyn Became America's Doctor. Hardcover children's book complete with illustrations published by Simon and Schuster. According to the story I'm reading, 48-page hardcover book chronicles the life and career of Dr. Anthony Fauci director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Before he was Dr. Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony was a curious boy in Brooklyn, delivering prescriptions from his father's pharmacy on his blue Schwinn bicycle, a description of the children's book said. His father and immigrant grandfather taught Anthony to ask questions, consider all the data, and never give up. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I have no doubt of this. And Anthony's ability to stay curious and to communicate with people would serve him his entire life. It also, the book comes with a full spread of facts about vaccines and how they work and Dr. Fauci's own tips for future scientists. We have got to get an early order of this book. We have got to. The story is taken from interviews between Dr. Fauci and the author of the book, so he fully cooperated with this. Um, June 29th. June tw- Can we leave the children alone, please? Isn't that enough? The Cartoon Network is doing their job on children. Netflix is doing their job on children. Enough curricula, as I've monologued about teaching toddlers to be race race conscious it's doing enough to children really i think can we leave them alone although i have to say there's something funny a little bit ironic about if there's a book about dr fauci to be written that it's a children's book i can't wait to see his tips for future scientists the reason i say this is whether he will have learned anything or disclose that he learned anything. Perhaps, like not postulating in public on things you don't know about when people take you seriously and are looking to you for answers and you don't have them. 
listen to the scientists. They really mean listen to the scientist, and they mean him. He who told us not to worry about changing our lives. He who told us this was not a virus that was going to consume America. He who told us masks may make you feel good, but they don't do anything. Who then told us there would be no vaccine within a year. Who then told us wear a mask. Who then told us wear two masks. Who then told us wear masks after you're vaccinated. I wonder if he'll have any tips for children about how to get out of those quagmires. The only problem is they aren't quagmires if they're not known. Unless you listen to conservative talk radio. Bill, do you have the Fauci uh, medley of hits? Unless you listen to talk radio, you probably don't know that this is Dr. Fauci or his record. Bottom line, we don't have to worry about this one, right? Well, I, you know, obviously you need to take it seriously and do the kinds of things that the CDC and the Department of Homeland Security are doing. But this is not a major threat for the people in the United States. And this is not something that the citizens of the United States right now should be worried about. We'd be changing our habits. And if so, how? No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day basis. I don't think this is something that the United States public should be worried or frightened about. Mm -hmm. I think the risk is very low right now for the United States. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask, and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. Okay. Okay. That's the scientist we were supposed to listen to. And now he gets a children's book written about him. Oh, my gosh, God save the children. God bless and save the children. I would like them to read books about heroes. Heroes like the policeman in Boulder who became a cop at the age of 41 and who rushed in to save as many lives as possible. I would like children to learn about heroes like Livu Labrescu. I would like children to read books about heroes like we saw on 9-11 and like we see really in so many crises where we emphasize the deep, dark, bottom, soulless evil of the perpetrator of the crisis and never the helper's. We convince ourselves to get to know the helpers, be with the helpers, find the helpers. But we never write stories about them, and we don't promote them enough to our children. That's why books of heroes, though in short supply, should not be. It's up to you to write the Rick Rescorla book.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our dear friend John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. He's also the host here of the Word on Wealth every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., bright and early. Uh, John Dombrowski's website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. How are you, sir? Hey, Mr. Liebson. How is it going? I'm doing fine. Well, let me go to my briefing book. To look yes. for the answer, like the president of the United States. I've never seen anything like that of you. Oh, my gosh. Now, who am I supposed to be talking to now? What are we doing next? Right, what, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just make sure it's not Fox News. Don't call on oh Ducey. That's the one no. thing they were said not to do. <laughs> the other Ducey, Governor Doug, he's opened yeah. up the state today, uh, lifting yeah. all state-required mandates for mitigation. This is a good sign for everyone, I think. I think people are going to be happy that they don't have to wear a mask. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's fantastic, and I hope to see some restaurants uh, taking advantage of it. Some of them are still self-imposing a little bit of a separation between tables and stuff. Well, and again, too, I know in our office, if if a client walked in and they felt like they wanted to wear a mask, I mean, I would certainly accommodate them. I'm not going to... Yeah, we want to make people feel comfortable in our homes. Of course. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah. Seth, did you see this thing down in um, the Suez Canal? So this is so interesting that you brought this up. This is a huge story that no one's paying any attention to. You have this stranded ship. It's huge. What's it called? The Ever Given? Yeah, think about that. The Ever Given, that's not giving anything but a lot of pain right now. Oh, my gosh. This is a huge story. Tell us about what's going on here. No one's one's appropriately seized by this. I am. Yeah, this is interesting. And this... um, this has been there for a few days. Yeah. It's been blocking the Suez Canal. It ran aground. The ship is so large, it literally kind of swayed sideways, and it's almost the full width of the of the opening yeah. for the Suez Canal yeah. there. And no, no other ships can get through. And they're talking about a cost of $400 million per hour that it is costing economies around the world, and $5.1 billion dollars a day that this is held up this is crazy because these ships that are waiting well over 100 ships that are waiting to get through the suez canal um if they take the alternative trip we're talking an additional 30 days added to the trip to get goods and services around the world this is going to be a major factor you think about this we had oil prices come down today uh, which we, we have seen oil coming down. But, boy, I went to the gas pump today, and it certainly isn't coming down there. Hopefully it will flow through to the gas pump soon. But the cost of goods that are being shipped through this canal, we would imagine there's going to be a shortage of things. Yeah. This is going to create some disruption, which, again, could potentially create shortages, then again raising prices on things. So, so this is not a good thing. $400 million dollars an hour in an hour. trade. That's almost as much as you make. Almost. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Unbelievable. This and no, is, this is and no one's talking about it. Yeah, and I just think it's really funny. No, I'm glad you're shit, bringing but... it up. I'm yeah. glad you're bringing it up. Uh, I, hope, I hope that they could get this, get this taken care of as soon as possible because, again, I do believe it could cause a real backlog and a shortage of, of goods. $400 million an hour, you bet. Yeah, you yeah. bet. Tell hey, me markets what, had a nice. Right, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And what is this about banks, big banks being allowed to uh, resume normal dividend payouts? Well, again, you know, one of the things when we looked at the potential uh, concerns over a financial crisis, it's always about liquidity. Yeah. 
And of course, banks are the the resource for the public, for us, as for liquidity for us. The yep. last thing we would ever want is for uh, banks to be in any type of financial um, hardship to where we would not have access to money. So there's been a lot of regulation put on the banks ever since uh, the financial crisis that we had in 2007 and 8. Mm-hmm. And there's just an ongoing uh, pressure on the banks to make sure that they're going to be be there for us when we need them. Good. And so some of these restrictions that were put on them and the stress tests that they go through uh, are all because of, you know, potential... Um, Boy, could you imagine if, if you went to the bank and you couldn't get your money? No, it's uh, right out of that, Mary Poppins. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't want another 1929 type of a scenario, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really what this is all about. So, you know, uh, with the with the ease in monetary policy, the money that's available to banks, uh, and the banks then taking that money, buying back their own shares, uh, you know, and these are all things that the government is basically saying, hey, uh, if, if we're going to give you this money for nothing, we're not giving it to you so that you can, you know, profit from it. We're right. giving it to you to create liquidity for the rest of, rest of the uh, public. Yep. And so, you know, they're they're hopefully going to hold these banks to a little bit of uh, accountability here. Good. And that's what I think you're seeing, Seth. Is good, just good. Uh, a little bit of regulation sometimes is a good thing. Good. Good. All right, brother. Hey, good to talk with you again. You As too. always, Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finra and Tipic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Check out our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there. And listen to the show this Thank Saturday, 7 a.m., KKNT. Thank you, John. We'll be right back. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Couple housekeeping issues. I, I I was married once. I'm not now. I'm not presently married. And I maybe 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 those of you who are can appreciate. Sometimes you get into this little rut where everything is an argument for like days on end. I've been in that with my producer Bill. We have just been at uh, cross swords for days on end, and every day I think it's going to get better, and it doesn't. So I. I could use some advice. He's he's running around in the production studio like a chicken with his head cut off because he can't find a piece of audio that he's described to me that I did not ask for, I do not know about, and I did not ever hear. And yet yeah, he, th- he, well. th- he thinks it's the most important thing and it's consuming all his time right now. I hope my GM, Jim, isn't listening. That. Do you ever have workspaces where the boss comes in and, you know, it's disruptive to everything, <laughs> even though he's the boss, <laughs> but he's the disruptor? So my my producer, Bill, and I do have a code word when the boss is walking down the uh, down the corridor to the uh, to the south wing of this uh, outfit. Uh, my producer will will yell um, Lloyd Braun as a, as a as a code word. And, and that's fine. But he comes in and he notices things and he futzes around with things in here that don't need futzing around with. So my studio is always freezing, not because I want it to be, but because that's the way it is. It's just the way it is. Always freezing. Yes, there's a thermostat. It doesn't work. 
It can take you from zero to sub-zero. That's all it does. It will not make anything hotter. You can go from hanging meat in here to um, blue lips. That That's basically your two options. So he's in here futzing around with the with the thermostat, and I'm telling him it doesn't work. Just please leave it alone. Please. Yeah. And why does your TV look like that? And why are the shades pulled down? So he futzes and he says, here, I'll make it better. And I'm progressively getting colder. This is 20 minutes ago, and I go over to look at it. He took it from the freezing to the sub-freezing. He took it from the zero to the sub-zero thinking he was helping. And, and now I have frostbite. Anyway, I don't know what the moral is except that uh, I, need, I, need, I need counseling. I'm having problems with authority figures. I'm having problems with my producer. Up and down, left and right, across the Welkin ring, all kinds of problems. It's like, did you ever see the movie Mighty Wind? When Jim comes in here, it's like when Bob Balaban, uh, Mr. Dalrymple on Seinfeld, it's like when he walks on stage to help the stage, uh, the stage manager coordinate all the all the statuary on the stage and it, that, that's what it's like if we have Can you that. have an actual three-dimensional object that's represents the thing that it actually is can that be next to something that it's pretending to be yeah that that that's what it's like around here okay um the eight uh, two other things that i want to that i want to get into is um are the eight the attacks uh, on asians uh, and anti-Asian uh, hate crimes, as well as the um, as well as the debate over guns that's coming out of Boulder and Atlanta. Because the one clear thing Joe Biden made uh, obvious today is, while he has no no handle on the uh, on the border crisis, and funny enough, I don't I don't have any idea why or how the um, the the media are allowing him to say, I'll let you come visit the facilities after I implement the policies I want. He's been on the job over two months. The, the facilities are his and the conditions are terrible and there's a blackout on the media. So he's he's saying once I fix them, you can visit them. This this is this is so much of a of a Potemkin village that he's putting up for them that they're going along with. I, I just don't know why they don't surrender their credentials now for putting up with it. But he is going after guns. That's clear. That has been a clear desiderata of the Democratic Party for years and years, including including Joe Biden's. And we're going to talk to uh, one of the nation's experts on uh, gun law and gun history, uh, uh, David Harsani. He wrote a book on the history of the Second Amendment. He's going to join us. But that that very clearly is what is um, is 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 what the president is going to try either through executive order or legislation. And then on this anti-Asian bias, the thing I have been talking about for at least two weeks now is the preciousness with which you find the left trying to hang anti-Asian bias crimes on the right and on statements that President Trump made about the origins of the virus when for years the greatest discriminations against the Asian American population in this country have been when it comes to reverse racism in affirmative action, when it comes to reverse racism in affirmative action in education policy, admissions, when it comes to advancement, when it comes to suing universities. When it comes to suing universities for racial bias claims, 
conservative legal movements are on the side of Asians all the time in every case, as is usually Republican departments of justice, as the Trump administration was on behalf of Asians suing Harvard. When the Biden administration came into power, uh, came into office, it dropped. It dropped those lawsuits on behalf of Asian American groups. And there is a great article uh, today in the Wall Street Journal substantiating everything I have been saying about this from an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, Wen Kong Fa. And uh, do I have time to get into it? I hope so. The horrific murders in Atlanta last week inspired an outpouring of support for Asian Americans. An attack on any group of us is an attack on all of us, said Harvard President Lawrence Bacow. To Asians, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and our community, we stand together with you today and every day going forward, was part of his statement. School, university president, school and university presidents throughout the country put out similar statements, including at ASU. Yet these schools and many others discriminate actively against Asian Americans in their admissions policies. In some cases, this practice is couched in doublespeak about diversity, equity, inclusion. In others, it's accompanied by the same type of bigotry these schools condemn. My colleagues and I represent, as she's writing from the Pacific Legal Foundation, many Asian American families who have felt the sting of discrimination. One case involves a coalition of Asian American parents in Fairfax County. Um, It includes one plaintiff, Haining Chen, who left China to pursue education in the U.S., Uh, Mr. Chen's eldest daughter attends Thomas Jefferson High School, probably the greatest high school in America, one of the best public high schools in America. And um, the Fairfax schools changed their admissions policies just this last year to make sure and ensure that not, quote unquote, too many Asians become matriculated and enter. Can you imagine such a thing? Where was the outcry then? Where was the outcry about that? Because the county replaced the objective admission standards to ensure that they had a quote-unquote racially balanced student body at the expense of Asian Americans. It's long past time we stop being lectured by the leftist and liberal elites in this country that anti-Asian animus or animus against Asian Americans is the fault of the conservatives. It's not. It's projection on their part. And when you take the thing most important to them, education, it's entirely resultant of left-wing policies. I'll say more about it when we come back. There was one part of the um, press conference Joe Biden held today that I haven't seen a lot of people comment on. But one part of it was when he was talking about uh, voter protection. And he talked about if you he said, if you've seen the Republican ideas for election reform, it makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Do you hear that line? Makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Does he think Jim Crow is actually a bird? Was that is that what he thinks? If he does, he's an idiot. I, I, I mean, this is absolutely the opposite of Jim Crow is not Jim Eagle. Jim Crow, of course, if, if you don't know the history of Jim Crow, it's from the early 19th century. It's an old minstrel show named after a person. 
not a bird. It's not a bird. Anyway, if I can go back to anti-Asian animus from this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, I think it's, peop- it's important people understand racial divisions in this country and where the uh, inflection point is. Public school systems engage in all kinds of discriminations to limit Asian American students. Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, commissioned a report on how to increase diversity and commit to its core values of equity in finding that Asian Americans were overrepresented in magnet middle schools in Montgomery County. Can you imagine a racial minority being considered as overrepresented? New York Mayor Bill de Blasio says the city's transparent and objective process for admissions to specialized schools like Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech has led to too many Asian-American students in those schools. He called the racial composition of those schools, quote, a monumental injustice. He's changed the admissions policies in those schools to make it harder for Asian-American students many from low-income families, to get in. As uh, Mr. Foss says in the Wall Street Journal, um, a welcome discussion about anti-Asian rhetoric shouldn't exempt progressive proponents of equity and racial balancing. Allison Collins, vice president of the San Francisco School Board of Education, once accused Asian Americans of using, quote, white supremacist thinking to assimilate and get ahead and called merit-based admissions racist since the school using them had a majority of Asian Americans. Do you understand what white supremacy is now? It's so prevalent, it's affecting Asian Americans. They're white supremacists too. These are hateful and inaccurate comments, and if you want to know where anti-Asian animus is at its worst, it's in the progressive left. This nonsense about talking about the coronavirus being the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus has led to no more incidents or anti-Asian incidents than talking about the Ebola virus or the Zika virus has led to anti-African American interests. David Harsani on gun rights when we come right back. 